When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Guys, listen to this. Do you know anything about dual sidewall design? Whisper grooves, earth diggers, or three-peak mountain certification? The Discover Rugged Trek Tire from Cooper has all of that and more. The unique dual sidewall design looks great and gives drivers the options for wear. Whisper groove technology blocks air from whistling through the tire, keeping that road noise where it belongs, outside. And if you find yourself out mudding with your friends, the earth diggers are large scoops and blocks on the side of the tire that act like cogs in a gear to help you dig in the loose dirt, sand, and mud, giving you traction on the trail. All of this has earned the Rugged Trek a three-peak certification, confidence that it has the goods to back up the looks. All Cooper tires are backed by a limited warranty, a 45-day test drive warranty, and select products are backed by Treadwear Mileage Warranty helping to give you confidence on the road. For complete product and warranty details, please visit www.coopertires.com or www.coopertires.ca. And remember, go with the Coopers. We are here at the BMW Championship, and our guest today is the man responsible for the recent restoration work done here at Aronomic, Mr. Gil Hans. Gil, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Are you podcasted out yet? No, not yet. I always, I mean, as long as we're going to have fun with it, I'm totally, I, I mean, that's, you can never have too much fun. There's a lot of topics we to discover or to uncover and unpack with you, and we uh, we did a few too much at dinner last night. I think and got, we were like, all right, we got to save some for the podcast. But uh, for those who haven't been to Aronomic, um, kind of take us there, take us through the process of what what was the proposal like? How did you end up getting the work to restore uh, this golf course, and what was the idea in mind behind the restoration? Yeah, I think um, I mean it's a, it's a home game for us for literally. 15 minutes from here. So, uh, John Goslin, the superintendent came to us at one point and said, listen, we're going to have to rebuild the bunkers before we have the championships here. Just more from a practical standpoint, the sand and the liners, et cetera, had gotten past their due date. And, um, when he asked us if we'd want to be involved, well, Ron Pritchard had been the architect here who did a great job. In fact, I said this to the members, you know, the second most important decision they made was hiring Ron Pritchard. The first was hiring Donald Ross way back when, because he got them thinking about restoration. And, you know, ultimately that was the right direction for them to go. We had over the years um, had access to a 1929 aerial photo from the Dolan collection down in, in at the Hagley Museum, which for golf geeks like us, it's like a gold mine. I mean, you can find all these great old photographs of Philadelphia golf courses and showed that the bunker pattern here was really quite different from what had been had been put in place. And so Ross's plans indicated maybe 60 or 70 bunkers, but the actual construction photograph showed that there were over 180 bunkers on the golf course. So we talked to John and we said, listen, if we're going to pitch this, why wouldn't we look at restoring what he built as opposed to what he drew? And John was all in. He was excited about it. Um, 
we had to ultimately convince the membership that that was a good idea. Cause when they're talking about, well, let's just rebuild our bunkers now, now it's a brave new world. And what do you mean? You're going to triple the number of our bunkers. <laughs> but I think we were able to make a compelling case based on Ross and the history of it. And they got excited about it. We did the work here in uh, 16 and 17. Jaeger Kovic was our point guy on site. So Jim Wagner and I worked with Jaeger and, and John, the superintendent. And we got it all knocked out. So that's how Jaeger had all that access to all that information that went on the fried egg, all, all the all the old videos from the construction here at Aronimic. And so on the bunker rebuild, it seems to us, you know, from looking at the, the pre-restoration and uh, and the post, that the bunkers are all in the same places. There's not necessarily a ton of new bunkers in new places. They just are they're breaking up bigger bunkers into smaller bunkers. What's kind of the rationale behind that? What how does that affect play or affect anything related to the golf course? Uh, I mean, it's more a visual from the standpoint of. Of, of scale and presentation, I think you know, we we talk an awful lot uh, internally and some now externally about you know, what it, what picture did Ross paint, what picture did Tillinghast paint, what picture did Rainer paint, etc. And there was some reason; it's not documented. We don't know why he went this direction. I mean, there are some theories that hey, this was you know William Flynn's town, and and Ross realized that he had a, a great piece of ground to work with, and maybe he was going to do something completely you know out of the box as far as getting uh something a little bit more dramatic and and trying to work his way into philadelphia and and, you know create his statement so for whatever reason because we have photos there's actually an old uh video of ross on site and he's kind of wandering around you know how those old videos like everything moves faster (laughs) he looks like a penguin kind of wandering around the sites and there are bunkers clearly in view and so he saw it uh, as it was constructed. But for the most part, um, we did restore some locations. We did move some bunkers downrange, like number two, the, you know, the dog like hole we took, there were basically layers of bunkers. We took the front layer and moved it to the back layer, um, trying to create areas where it might be a bit of a challenge for, for primarily for the better playing members. Um, at the time we knew the tour event was coming here, but from the membership perspective, they were like, listen, those guys are coming here once, you know, at the time they didn't know they were going to get the PGA championship and, and that can be addressed as we get closer to 27, <laughs> but you know, they wanted it to, to play well for a, a high class amateur, which this club has plenty of. And so that's the positioning wherever we moved bunkers down range that tended to fall where, where it would affect them. And that's the, what we were talking about some last night is you, you, the, the idea behind the restoration was for the members and it's not for the professionals that come here for really four days. And this, this is kind of a, a one-time thing. There is, there are going to be major championships here in the future, but how do you like this old classic golf course? It's pretty much maxed out at 7,300 yards. You could potentially build some new tees, but there's not a lot of real estate out there for it. What is your, I guess, your mindset when you're going through this, knowing that the BMW Championship is coming here? Wh- how do you bring any of that consideration into a plan that really is for four days, where compared to all the other golf that's going to be played on this golf course and challenging these guys? Yeah, I mean, the plan for the four days is pray for it to be dry. Yeah, and so that ultimately it'll be yeah. firm. And you know, part of the, the the fairways are wide. The players have said that, but it's the scale that again, it's all back to scale. You know, the scale that Ross presented on this landscape was in a, was a certain way, and we tried to really. And you, know, you talk about Jaeger and his access. I mean, he's kind of like an uh, aerial photograph savant. I mean, he just looked at, at every little detail, and, and which was great in helping us to restore it as, as effectively as possible. But when you look at the scale of the place, the fairways were wide, but 
if this golf course is firm, the, the effective width of the fairways is much narrower because there's a lot of cross slope. And then, so then we, our hope was if this played firm, the guys would have to control the shape of their shot to hold the slopes. And unfortunately that's not going to come true this week with all the rain and the humidity we've had. And then, you know, forecast for rain this weekend. But if you combine firm fairways, significant slopes, and you combine that with significant slopes and firm greens, now it's a completely different ball game. Ball game. They've got to think about angles. They've got to think about how they attack these holes. And you know, with a soft golf course, and as far as they hit it, it's it's unfortunately not going to be as relevant. Mm-hmm. They'll, be, they'll be they'll be working to find the pin positions that'll that'll at least challenge them some with approach shots. There's some there's some ridges out there. <laughs> some little shelves that there are. And I walked around with a couple guys yesterday uh, with Rory McIlroy and Webb Simpson, just you know, as part of their pro am groups, just walking and talking and listening. And and it's interesting the dialogue that occurs between caddies and players as sort of a run up to a tournament is fascinating. And I think it helps me to be a better golf course architect as it relates to these players if i can start to kind of listen in and and, and it's amazing how much they talk about their misses and where they you know all right if the pins here intentionally i'm going to play to this spot etc etc and they factor in the ridges and the you know they hate the up and overs you know that's difficult it's difficult Mm -hmm. for all of us but for a touring pro they really just don't want to have to you know kind of hit it up over a ridge and then let it figure out how it's going to die coming down to the hole so the ridges in the greens definitely caught their attention. How is it? So, you know, in looking at this course and Tron got to play with Kevin Kisner yesterday and I got to play with Tommy Fleetwood and those guys have a little gap between them in far, as far as distance, take us through kind of the, some of the stuff that Kisner was saying about the setup. I mean, so he was, he was frustrated because every, like, I think he, he probably carries it to about 280. He's like, man, if I carried it 285, I'd be, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be in the best spot in the planet you know, on most of these holes, but he's like, it's, it's more frustrating for him because it'd be one thing if he was just, just knew his line was out to the left, but it's, it's just tempting enough for him to go over those, those bunkers, like on, on six and, uh, uh, like the one on 15 down the right, like, yeah. the, you know, and, and then, but it's a totally different golf course. He was saying for Rory and Dustin and Tiger, you know, they're, they're carrying it. You carry it 300 and you know, you're, you're taking lines that he's like, I don't even, that doesn't even occur to me. Yeah. And then the Webb Simpson had the exact same points. He was talking about the same thing. It's like they're right in play for, for where I hit the, hit the shot and not for the longer hitters. And he was asking why we did that. And I said, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't for you. It was, that's where Ross had the bunkers. And when you think about the architects of that era, they would cut the bunkers into upslopes. And so if you're running out of upslope or you have to, in order to fit it in for Rory or Dustin, you got to put it on a downslope, then that's not going to look right. They're not going to see it. And it certainly is it's difficult to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking specifically about the one on 15 and, and we were standing looking over it. And I said, well, if we we're going to build another bunker to challenge those guys, we'd have to kill the tree that's right there because we'd be cutting the roots out and destroying it when we actually build the bunker. And it's like, oh, we would have never thought of that. And so, you know, there's a lot of these practical considerations for why we didn't do it. But the principal focus is that trying to put back what Ross built. And Ross wasn't thinking about Rory McIlroy carrying it at 310. Is taking trees out a tough sell a lot yeah. of times for these memberships? It is. It's the toughest thing we ever run into. You know, I, any single club we deal with, it's just that's the you know, people get emotional. They get this more subjective thing. And when we come in, we try to be objective about it. And we've done these you know five criteria that we, we assign to trees and we look at them throughout the entire property you know it's history it's aesthetics it's safety it's playability and agronomy 
and you know, there's a rationale behind each one of those uh, topics that we you know, put to a tree. And if we make the recommendation for it to come out based on one of those, and I think as people start to think about it, they realize, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Or this makes sense. There's some people who will never, you know, budge off of that, and they're going to chain themselves to the trees, etc. <laughs> but you know, from the standpoint, if you're thinking about, listen, it's a golf course, it's not an arboretum. Some tough decisions have to be made, but I will say that we have never had a club come back to us at the end of a project and say you took down too many trees. Yeah. <laughs> never happens. It's got to be kind of the thing you don't you don't really fully realize until they're gone how how great it is to be able to see other stuff. You never look at a course and are like, man, I wish there were more trees in the way here, <laughs> like of viewing other holes and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, so kind of back on that topic about the distance in the bunkers, I think kind of what what we were discussing there with Rory and where those guys are hitting it is they are able to take risk out of their tee shots by just grabbing driver, by hitting it really far. And I think, you know, you touched on, you're trying to restore this golf course. You're not trying to necessarily set it up for these guys. Let's say, take something like TBC Boston, where you are specifically making changes to try to challenge longer hitters, try to challenge the top professionals. What are the kind of considerations that, that you make in that, in that to try to limit guys ability to eliminate trouble by just hitting it really far? Yeah, I think we saw last year on number 12, um, which wasn't very well received, is we, we tried to <laughs> we limit distance. <laughs> uh, we limit distance by basically ending the fairway, and we created a, a quote-unquote natural landform there that seemed to work in. And I actually like the TV shots from thir- behind 13T. You can see the ridge extending across, and it fit from a New England perspective. But really, you almost have to end the fairway, and I think the from the back tee, it was 340. Um, as to where things would end. But then we also tried to limit or, or make their gauge their accuracy by having the bunkers in the center of the fairway, and that didn't go over very well. So, um, you know, and, and looking at 18, you know, when we designed this. So the other thing I have to think about is the major restoration of that golf course occurred in 2006. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about at that time, you know, 295 to 300 was a massive hit. Well, now those bunkers that are at 295 to 300 are irrelevant for the longer hitters, and they're right in the Kisner, the Webb Simpson, the guys that. So, you know, I would say of looking at that golf course, we may have to go back in and start to readjust and move things downrange. But you don't ever want to, you know, modulate distance as an advantage out of the entire golf course. You want to let the bombers hit away on certain holes and then other holes you take away the advantage or you put everybody in the same spot or you reward accuracy, which is really the thought process behind 12 was, okay, if we're going to put everybody in the same spot, let's make them have to actually hit that spot. And maybe some of the guys who don't hit it as far, but are more accurate can get there as opposed to the other guys pulling driver. And we've seen, you know, DJ and Brooks Kepka, I mean, some of the best driving I've ever seen of the golf ball. You know, normally the thought process was, okay, they want to hit driver, go ahead. The the spectrum of the, the way they're going to hit their shot, the chances are they're going to hit a worse shot with their driver. But the way these guys are hitting driver now, it's it's almost like they're hitting a three wood from an accuracy perspective. So I think you just have to look at, you know, basically cutting off where they can go and it's sad to have to say that but you you know you can you can try to tempt them to do things but they're smart i mean they're gonna basically if there's if there's a a carry they don't feel comfortable with they're gonna just hit three wood and and take it out of play and they're still only hitting a nine you know they're hitting an eight iron instead of a wedge or a nine iron instead of a gap wedge and for them it doesn't really matter interesting conversations we had yesterday with rory i said what'd you hit into 
12 at, at TPC Boston. He said, well, on the Sunday, Monday, it was the wind was in a little bit. And he said, actually, I did a five iron and then a four iron and, and turned to his caddy and I said, is that the longest club he's hit all year into a into a par four? You know, not counting like, you know, Carnoustie where yeah. with the wind or something. He said, yeah, that's it. He said, other than before that hole, it was like a seven iron was the longest. And Bell Reeve had, he said it was a Bell Reeve and they had like, you know, 530 yard par fours. And it was sopping wet. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess part of, and I've listened to your, your conversation, some with Andy and read some of his stuff over the Friday about how I don't, I don't understand the reaction to that bunker on 12 and that. Yeah. If a bunk, if, if a bunker, I forget what the exact phrase is, but like if a bunker is directly where you want to hit it, like that's a well placed hazard. And why? Why? I'm, not, I'm just not sure why the PGA Tour reacts to negative feedback from a player about a setup. That that's challenging them. Like, look how we just talked about how easy this game is for them, relatively speaking. Mark Brody was on the podcast a couple a couple months ago and said there's a misnomer about the longest hitters and that's their long that they are long and wild it's they are long and incredibly accurate like i don't know how you stop a golf course and then and just in talking about here 7300 yards nowhere to go and there's going to be a major here in nine years what is what's next with technology where is the game going where does any of this stop and what how do you how does that work into what you do <laughs> like it's it's getting it's gonna get it's already gotten pretty crazy and it's only gonna get worse i have a feeling yeah i don't know where it goes i mean part of the i mean it's it's all the different things it's obviously the technology the balls the clubs etc it's the fitness which you know some people poo poo that but they're they're better athletes and they're working hard at things somebody was telling me yesterday about this new drill a guy was working on with ropes in order to try and increase their you know, club head speed by three or four miles per hour for a guy that's already you know killing it and you look at and i think the fitting i think you know the opportunity for these guys because what they're trying to do is repeat i mean they just want to be able to repeat and if they get a repetitive swing over and they work really hard to get that and if now you can figure out what that repetitive swing is and then tailor made all of your tech all of your technology to do to that your shafts your heads everything is to optimize that repetitive swing that's a serious advantage with yeah. trackmen and all the infrastructure the stuff that's out there and you get, you know that's only going to get better so that's part of the equation as well so it's not just as simple as rolling the ball back i think there's somebody and obviously it's the ruling bodies need to take a sort of an incredible look at it because it becomes the the difference between the elite golfer and, and the rest of us, even though the elite professional versus the elite amateur, it, the gap is widening, widening. And so I'm, I'm been a proponent of bifurcation. I think we need to look at it because you don't want to take the advantages that are occurred to for the average guy like myself. I mean, why make it any harder? We're trying to grow the game. And if all of a sudden you make it harder and now people go away from it, that's, that's just not a good thing. But we do think we need to look at how the elite golfer approaches the game make the ball spin again too (laughs) yeah you know i think it would be great to have the guys have to to shape shots i mean what part of what we did at 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 doral and the restoration or renovation of the blue monster was that you know we we restored the angles that dick wilson had put in place where if you don't shape your ball you're going to hit it through the fairway into a set of bunkers on the far side so everything was angled and the guys went crazy because they can't they they're not used to doing that and they don't want to be told they have to do it. And I think that's part of the reaction to the, the fairway bunkers on number 12 was that, you know, since they were little kids, they're always told down the middle, hit it long, hit it straight, hit it long, hit it straight. And all of a sudden somebody's put something really 
horrible and penal, which those bunkers were. They were tough. They weren't guys weren't going to hit a five iron out of them and get on the green. They were going to have to. As I think I, I learned the phrase uh, "chip out bunkers" from some of the players. That was I never heard that before. But you know what? It's it's a penalty, and it's intended to be. So I think once you once you push the envelope in a certain way to have a reaction, you go. You would expect a counter reaction. The fact that it there was much vitriol was a little bit surprising to me. But you know, ultimately, uh, the players of the show, not the golf course, not the golf course architect. And and if the tour feels strongly enough that we've done something that inhibits their ability to put on a good performance, then you know, you're going to pay the price. But if I remember right, reading Andy's article, it said the fairway, the gap between the centerline bunker and the left side of the fairway was one yard wider than the fairway was previously to that bunker being put in. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But it's, uh, you know, what was interesting too. Jim Wagner and I were talking about this after watching was that golfers still try, still hit the ball down the right hand side, even though that angle was terrible into the green. They didn't even though they had 70 yards to hit it into, they weren't trying to get up on the left with higher elevation, better angle into it, et cetera, et cetera. So you can lead a horse to water. (laughs) Well, it's just back to the technology, what you're saying though, we're also kind of in all the optimization that's going on. We also are kind of starting to see the fruits of, the cl- one, the class of people that Tiger has influenced coming into the game and two people that have been training on this track man and all of this optimization from the time they were a kid. So that, I mean, there is a, just a slew of guys that are going to come out and just Cameron champ style, just start launching the ball. And it's going to, it's going to become, and it already has started to become a, you know, how these guys, a, a test of the optimization of just those guys. It's going to be a kind of a formula that's going to off all these young players. And it's going to, I don't know how you stop it. I, I, well, I think that the key thing we talked about firmness is that, you know, it's predictability. You know, they want a predictable outcome. They want to know that I've got this yardage and that's the predictable outcome of hitting this shot is going to be this. If architecture provides unpredictability, either through sight lines or through locations or things are a little bit awkward or they don't quite see what's going on. That's one way to defend the golf courses. If the maintenance provides unpredictability where you're not sure if the ball's going to check after one bounce or two bounces because it's firm and it's fast, that's an important part of how we defend these golf courses as well. So as much as we can be unpredictable, which you know some people view as well that's bad architecture because of what i can't see the bottom of the flag <laughs> yeah. um you <laughs> know making them th- play it on the ground too. right you know that that's that's another variable like these guys can be so precise through the air but once you make them play it on the ground it's a totally different ball yeah, absolutely game. And, I, and i think anytime and you look at great old golf courses and i think that recovery is, is in my mind the soul of a golf architecture because even the touring pros they only hit what 10 out of 14 fairways or nine out so it's when they miss what are they faced with? And if those recovery options are compelling enough or, or challenging enough that it impacts their thought process when they get on the tee is like, God, there's no way I can miss this right because I'm dead because trying to get onto that green with a slope, et cetera, et cetera. So if we can try to create golf holes that, you know, where the recovery still allows them to display their skill, but boy, they've got to hit a great shot. That's something. The other thing we've talked an awful lot about is on par fives. I mean, it's like, it's a God given right for a tour player to be able to get on a par five and two. Well, if you don't hit a good shot, we want to make sure you're not going to get on into, but if you have the opportunity to go, Jim and I talk an awful lot, you better hit an exceptional golf shot. Not just a good one, not just a very good one, but it's got to be exceptional for you to get, you know, be rewarded with an eagle. 
the 18th green at, at, at TPC Boston had them scratching their heads for a long time because they hate that miss left. Yeah. And every player you talk to about is like, man, I'm standing out in that fairway. And I'm thinking, God, don't go left, don't go left. Cause, but it's short grass. So, you know, I can, I can get, I'm not going to get up and down a lot, but I'm not going to lose a ball or I'm not going to blade it out of a bunker. If we put bunkers over there, they'd be hitting it all day long. So it's how do you provide challenges that are going to be perceived as, as more playable for the average guy, the member there, but still super challenging for them if they're, if they're trying it. So I've heard a few players say, well, that green's, you know, I hit a great shot in there and it kind of bounced over. Well, it wasn't a great shot. It needed to be an (laughs) exceptional shot. If that green was not receptive to a wedge, for a third shot, then there's something wrong with it. Sure. But the fact that you have to hit a great shot in order to hold it with your second shot on a par five, I think that that's that's what golf architecture should be as it relates to these guys. It's true risk reward that 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 shot too. And it reminds me of the 16th hole at, at uh, Sawgrass a little bit too. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, if you want to take on this this all this trouble to the right, that's your shot at the green. But if you bail left, it's not easy. Like there's yeah. it's it's you got to take this on at some point. When are you going to do it? And watching guys ba- guys bail left at and like uh, Rafa Cabrera Bayo bailed left on the. Or I'm not sure he was trying to, but he went left with his approach, and then I think chipped it. Uh, too far into the bunker, bunker and then he made bogey from there just because yeah. it's such a penal place to be but yeah if they're just bunkers back there those guys are getting up and down all the time so right. oh back to what you said on uh just the punch up calling that bunkers punch out bunkers yeah open championship all those courses have a lot of <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's that's how those courses are defined well it's, it's an interesting thing that you get into and I, and it, it really dawned on me uh walking oakmont with paul azinger in preparation for the telecast and and we we're on the fifth hole and i said to paul what do you think about blind tee shots? And he goes, I hate them. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what about this one? He goes, ah, it's okay. I said, well, why is this one okay? And he said, well, it's been here forever and it's an old golf course and you know, you, you'll figure out where to go. And I said, well, wait a second. What if we had designed this golf hole and left? He, he said, I'd hate it. I said, well, why? He said, because you could have changed it. He said, you chose to keep it blind. Whereas instead you could have, you know, cut it out, taking you know, pans and bulldozers and scraped it. And as a result, you're an SOB because you left it this way. <laughs> the old guys didn't have any choice. So you just accept it and go forward. And so I think when you, you draw a comparison to the open championship courses, they're like, oh, these courses have been here for hundreds of years. I'm not going to complain about a bunker in the middle of the fairway. But as soon as, you know, Gil Hansen, Jim Wagner put one in the middle of the fairway, well, those guys, they suck. And that's one <laughs> of the things we talked about, you know, it's easy to say that Gil Hans sucks. It's much harder to say that Donald Ross sucks or A.W. Tillinghast sucks. And so, you know, that's just that comes with the comes If those the guys were around today, do you think they would be labeled just, oh, like these guys are just extremists? <laughs> no, I think they'd be, you know, I honestly believe that, you know, when all of this, the history of golf architecture gets rewritten in 50, 70, 100 years, I think that Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw will be mentioned right there with those guys. I think Tom Doak will be mentioned as one of the guys like a Ross or a Tillinghast, et cetera. So I think that those guys would have been, you know, in cahoots with Bill and Ben and Tom and, you know, they'd have been regarded in that, in that light in this day and age. And they'd have been creative. And one of the great things about what they did, it was always all about golf. It wasn't about real estate sales. It wasn't about hiding card paths. It was all about creating compelling golf holes in the natural landscape. And how do you do that? And how do you challenge people? And they'd have figured out at this point in time, based on the technology, just like they did back in their day, you know, when you're switching from hickory to steel shafts, when you, you know, the ball's changing, 
uh, putters changing all that. They had to react to those things in their time and, and they did it and they did it greatly. Broadly asking, what is your, what is your mindset towards rough? I uh, like unpredictable, rough, not consistent. Again, it gets back to that whole predictability mm-hmm. thing. I think that rough as it relates to um, if if you know that if you hit it in there, all you're going to do is chip out sideways, then you play the tee shot with a defensive mindset and you play the golf course in a more defensive setup. You probably take less chances with driver, et cetera. If you think, hey, I might get away with this. I might have a flyer, but I might be able to have a shot or I might get a great break or I might be dead. Then you play with a more offensive mindset. And I think that that's that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, it was just the the rough on the right of number four out here. The whole fairway slopes left to right. And I don't know if it's intentional from the setup was the thickest probably we saw on the entire course yesterday. And that was <laughs> some of the most penal rough I think I've ever hit a, <laughs> hit a shot. I was 10 yards off the fairway and couldn't get the ball out of it. And it was it was interesting penalty, but it seems to be that seems to be the answer to a lot of from a PGA tour standpoint of you got to make these guys feel punished for missing fairways, especially when they're as wide as they are. Is there, do you see a major gap in the importance of rough at the professional level versus the importance of rough at the amateur mid handicap level? Well, I think it's all, all dictated by what are you, what result do you want? I mean, if the result is that we want these guys to shoot six or seven under par at this golf course, then rough has to be a critical component Mm -hmm. to it. You know, if we don't really care what they shoot and it's more interesting to watch them have wide fairways and try and figure out which side of the fairway they want to come into. And as long as those angles are relevant, I I think that that's much more interesting golf to watch and more compelling. So I think it just all runs back to what circumstances are you trying to create what sort of challenge and and rough can be a critical component in that i mean we're going to see you know i think part of you know a lot of criticism about the setups for u.s opens but we're we're seeing a variety of setups which i love i think that what mike davis is doing is focusing on um the architecture of the golf course first and foremost you know oakmont was narrow because oakmont's always been narrow and penal shinnecock was wide because flynn had it wide and it was bouncy etc we're going to see pebble beach is obviously going to be we know what pebble is wing foot's going to be narrow so we're going to see over a period of time all these different setups and i like that but it is more reflective of the architecture and what they're expecting so you recently redid Wingfoot, both courses at Wingfoot. Now, is there any part of that process where you come in and say, you know, I think these fairways could be a little wider and do they just say, no, it's going to be narrow? How does that, because <laughs> it's, 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 uh, that's never going to happen at Wingfoot, especially because they, I think they take a lot of pride in that being a very challenging golf we, course. We, we do. We, we've had those conversations and generally what we were able to accomplish is we were able to widen the fairways back where the members hit it. So maybe in the 200 to 250 range off the, off the tee the back tees so give a little bit more room a place where a tour player would never really think to hit you know they don't want any long anything to do with long irons into those greens uh and then keep the narrow nature up where the players you know in that sort of 280 to 330 range keep it narrow talking about the u.s open how do you like doing the telecast i love it yeah it's fun it's it's um it's it's a commitment of time, but I enjoy doing a deep dive into you know other golf courses. Um, when we get to Wingfoot, it'll be the first time it's a golf course that we're involved in. But you know, being able to study Oakmont and Shinnecock and Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills, and be able to talk to Robert Trent Jones Jr. and talk to Mike Hurds and, and Dana Fry and Ron Witten about what were they trying to to do on these modern golf courses that have hosted uh, U.S. Opens has been fascinating to me to learn and listen and you know, can offer my opinions and. 
and and it's fun and it and it's a I mean, you learn a lot. You guys are used to this, but you know, the first time at Chambers Bay, I ever sat in the chair and had the headphones on, we were live because the you know all of the all of the rehearsals were Joe Buck and Greg Norman. We sat and watched because it's a whole new venture for everybody. It's a new team, and mm-hmm. I'm sitting there and I'm petrified. <laughs> and those lights are hot. Lights are hot, and you're like, oh my god! And then all of a sudden, you hear Mark Loomis like, okay, we're going to go here. Da, 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 da. And the thing that I had to learn quickly, and I got, you know, it, it was interesting. A lot of people gave me praise for it. It was like, oh, he's very concise. He's very quick. He just kind of gets in and gets out. Well, that's because I was scared to death. <laughs> and, and, you know, there was a, uh, the first time it hit me was we were, Mickelson was hitting a shot into like number 10. And he, and, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, Mickelson's setting it up. They're setting up the shot. And I've got to, con- you know, comment about the blind nature of the shot. And then all of a sudden I hear, okay, as soon as the ball hits the green, we're going to three in my ear. And so I have to like talk about this really fast because as soon as the ball hits the ground, we're going to another hole. And what I'm talking about, cause I'm talking about the actual golf hole, it's mm-hmm. no longer relevant. So I've learned over you know f- the four years that I can linger a little bit longer and talking, you know, it's not going to kill the broadcast if mm-hmm. it kind of goes into the next one. But I had a lot of fun this year with Shane Bacon and Brad Faxon. I think, uh, I've heard from a lot of people that it was a good, you know, three of us were good together. So I'm hopeful in the future, if they have me back, that uh, I'll get to work with those guys again. And that's just kind of a luxury you guys are afforded with how much time you're on the air. Like you can take time out of to, you know, teach people about the golf course you're going to watch through the entire. I mean, you can watch on TV, but you don't really fully understand what these guys are considering, what they have to think about, what the intentions of the architect were. And Like tuning in and learning something is like, you know, we all tune in because we want to be entertained, right? But it's like being able to actually learn something and is like, that's well, like the icing on the cake. It's thanks. Cool. I appreciate that. And one of the nice things, you're right, because generally when I'm on, nobody's watching or the, leader, the leaders <laughs> are watching. <laughs> the leaders aren't on the golf course, so you can linger, you know, as they get down to crunch time, then obviously it's more appropriate for, yeah. for the talk to be about the action sure. than the golf course. The people listening to this podcast are also watching. When yeah. you're on. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to watch in 2020 when, when, you're, uh, when, you're, when you're calling it then to be like, oh, this was just brilliant restoration yeah. work here. <laughs> Wonderful placement of the bunkers here. Uh, you've also recently been working on the number four course at Pinehurst. Uh, for people that have never been to Pinehurst, or take us through kind of what that what that project has been like, what was there previously, and what you guys are doing with that golf course. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Tom Pashley and Bob Deadman at the resort have made a commitment to improving the the core. I mean, the entire resort, but focusing from a golf perspective at the core, which is, you know, courses one through five. And obviously, after Bill and Ben did the great work they did on course number two, it set a standard for what golf should be at the resort. And I think that they felt like they needed to look at, at one of the golf courses for the potential for, for an update. And so number four has, by all accounts, the best topography on the, at the entire resort. It's really got an opportunity to be something special. It, uh, the previous iteration had been done by Tom Fazio back in the late 90s. And, and with the success of the restoration of this Carolina Sandhills look and feel that Bill and Ben had done, the thought was, well, why don't we look at that as, as a model? So we took that and we're excited to be involved. We restored a lot of the sandy areas. We, we reconnected the landscape because a lot of the shaping that had been done sort of 
didn't didn't fit the landscape. So some of the valleys, you know, the ridges where valleys were and, and vice versa. So we put all of that back together. I think it's got a really nice natural feel to it. It's meant to be a companion course to course number two. It's not a tribute. We didn't try to outdo Ross and build greens. Like you know, it would be stupidest thing we could have ever done <laughs> is like the best examples right there. So, um, but we did, you know, let Ross influence what we did. And we looked at maybe some of his earlier works where you've got slopes that feed onto greens. We've, you know, took some of his bunker placements, but we're excited about it. It opens in about three weeks and uh, actually about two weeks now. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear what people think. Take us take us through the process of how it seems to be this project was different from how you sodded the place, how you did the grassing from a hole to hole basis. How did that work? Yeah. So what we did was we, we blew up three holes and we started working on those and they were the, the lowest ones. So we needed, you know, we had the most exposure to damage potentially from runoffs, et cetera. And then once we got those shaped, we stripped sod off of the next or, you know, two or three holes or four holes that we were going to go work on. And we moved that sod and put them on the three holes that were finished. And then we did those next. So we basically leapfrogged around the property and utilize the sod. So I was down there last Friday and Bob Farron, Kevin Robinson and Alan Owen have got that place as mature as any new golf course I've ever seen. I mean, so that was the quickest grow in. It was yeah. great growing. It stabilized the site because you guys, it's hilly. Mm-hmm. And so with the amount of rain we've had this summer, if we hadn't sodded it, there's no way that golf course opens in two weeks, wow. just not possible. So <clears throat> I don't remember if it was Bob Farron or Jim Wagner who came up with that thought of, you know, how we kind of leapfrog around the property, but it was a great idea. It saved a lot of money, saved a lot of uh, effort. And and I think gives you a a mature golf course right from the start. And where did you live? Where did you live while you were down there? Yeah, we slummed it. It's funny. (laughs) Bill Coor and I always joke around because they, they always come in and do like the, the first course or the second course when there's nothing there, like a stream song. Yeah. And then we come in and we get to live in the lap of luxury. And so, uh, the, the resort, Bob Deadman, they bought the Donald Ross's house. Um, and so Tracy and I got to uh, live for two months in, in Dornick cottage. And yeah, it was, it's the most meaningful thing that anyone's ever done for us. I mean, we pick up and move a lot and we, we spend a lot of time on site, but to be able to do it in Pinehurst and living in his house, I it's still goosebumps. How many days a year do you spend on a bulldozer? I'm hopeful it's, you know, 150 plus. So you're, you're out there shaping it. Yeah. Like that's, yeah, that's the part of the job I love. Yeah. It's, it's a fun part. You know, you get to listen to music. It's no secret. I'm a big fan of music and, and just, you know, it's your bubble. Turn off the phone, be creative, build stuff. And then, uh, you know, between what, what Jim, Jim Wagner does, which he's the most talented shaper I've ever seen. And, and, um, then we've got all the cavemen working kind of behind us. So we do a little bit more editing of their work, which is, you know, we don't have to do a ton because they're all talented. So yeah, that whole construction process is, it's fun, but yeah, as long as my back holds up, I'm going to stay in the dozer as long as I can. <laughs> you mentioned stream song and you just had the, the black horse opened up recently. What's the, what's the feedback? What was kind of the idea going into it and what's the feedback been like on that, uh, on that project? So it's been, uh, it, it's been frankly a little bit mixed and I don't know necessarily that people don't like the course. It's a little bit misunderstood. That's what I, I think. That's, that's my takeaway as well. Yeah, is that people just don't quite understand what we were doing around the green. So the, the original remit was, listen, we've got these two golf courses here, red and blue, which are great. And they're purposely intertwined and, and routed together. And there's more of a compact feel to them, but really big 
landforms that that distinguish the golf courses. We want to build something big as a standalone over here. You know, Rich Mack, the founder of Streamsong, said we want to be able if we want if we you know, there was no mandate we're going to have this tournament, but we want to host any tournament. So that necessarily, you know, getting back to our conversation, you know, there are tees that can play at seventy six hundred yards, and he said he wanted it to be a challenge. So we looked at it and we thought, okay, as a resort golf course, what can we do to make it challenging yet yet still keep it very playable? And so the scale of the golf course is big. We're hopeful that, you know, wide fairways, but there's still relevant angles. And what we thought was, well, what if we get the surrounds of the greens? And this is something that we talked a lot with Mark Parson and at Castle Stewart was what if the the actual greens themselves have, are challenging, but the surrounds are really where you know, you've got to golf your ball, but you can do it in a way where you can putt, where you can chip, where you can hit all these different creative shots. But if you miss, you know, you could miss pretty big if you're not really paying attention, but your ball's not in your pocket. You're still engaged. You're still playing. So in order to compound that, we decided to grasp the surrounds the same as the greens because we wanted that really tight. And then it got down to, well, what if we just mowed the entire thing, but we only pin certain sections? Well, that's great in theory, as long as the crew only pins certain sections. <laughs> apparently early on, there were a few pins that were outside of where we had ever intended them to be. To where hold. the sprinklers are on those greens too. It's really cool. Like, I mean, you'll, you'll be, you'll be, 20 yards outside the sprinkler and it's still mode is green. And yeah. It's, and it's wild. And so from, so we felt like that presentation would fit the scale, but American golfers who've not really spent any time in, in overseas and not, you know, they, there's, they want definition and they feel lost if there's no definition. And when you feel lost on a golf course and maybe the results don't quite go your way, you're not going to blame yourself. So you're going to sort yeah. of say, well, this is, this is either dumb or I don't get it. I think the caddies are doing a better job of explaining to people what the expectations are. I personally think it was a very interesting way to go about trying to make a course more challenging um, to provide, you know, a real emphasis on the short game as opposed to, you know, we could have put lakes all over the yeah. thing. We could have put bunkers everywhere and you'd have been miserable out there. And, but I guess maybe some people have, if, if they feel like they four putted, even though they actually haven't, they might feel more misery associated with that. <laughs> That's when it kind of clicked to me when you said, yeah, would you rather I put a bunker here or water here and you lost your ball or would you rather have four putted? Yeah. <laughs> it was funny. We were both long of the second green there and you know, he played one through the air and I bumped a hybrid through there and, we both hit good shots, but it was completely different ways of doing it. Well, and Jim and I talk a lot about it. It's like, listen, we sometimes we build courses and they're polarizing. And we'd actually rather have people have strong reactions both ways. Because there are some people who are like, oh, my God, it's the most fun I've ever had in my life. Yeah. I didn't lose a golf ball. I had a blast. And there are other people like, I, I just don't get it. And you know what? We build courses that in our minds we think require multiple playings to really start to figure it all out. And if people are going to, after one time, go, eh, yeah, I'm not interested. I don't get it. I'm not going to try to learn. Then they, you know, they're not going to like our work. And that's okay. We have to, I have to get to that point where you just understand that we're proud of it. The client's happy. And if some people either don't get it or don't like it, that's it's all right. What are the considerations like between doing, you do a lot of the mostly restoration work on private golf clubs, but designing and re restoring a private golf club versus something like Streamsong, which is a resort course for the public. Are there different considerations that have to go into how you, how you design it, set it up and whatnot? Not really. I mean, there are some, 
but we try, we're just trying to build good golf courses and I, whether the golf course is private or public or a resort, um, you, you might get a little more like a hoopy match club is, 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 you know, a course that we've just finished and is opening this fall and, but it's predicated on match play. So we felt like, you know, we all talk about strategic golf holes and we, you know, everybody's strategic or penal, but we kind of forget about that third school is heroic. And, and so I think, a hoopy has, you know, a good match between strategic and, and heroic. And there's some things, if you want to take it on, I mean, talk about risk reward, it's all or nothing. And because it's a match. So if, if we're having a match yeah. and I'm not worried and Jim and I looked at it, if we're not worried about somebody writing a 10 on their scorecard, all they're saying is oh, I lost the hole and we move on. That's liberating from a design standpoint. So unless you get an owner like Michael Walrath at, at a hoopy, who's looking to do something completely different, we're, we're trying to build as good a golf course as we can. And we don't, you know, we, we try not to segregate out, mm-hmm. you know, between the, the, the style or, or the, you know, whether it's private or public. Some of those pictures from a hoopie, like I felt like I was looking at a Kingston Heath on the sand belt. I mean, it looks really, really Thanks. cool. That's, with that's the bunkers. a compliment. I appreciate well, that. Well, yeah, take us, you mentioned some of the things that are considered there, but what is, what makes a course a great match play course? I, I think it's, it's, um, you know, within your skill set, you have to make choices. You know, if you're a really good player, the, your choices are something different than a guy who's a, a seven or eight handicap, and his choices are different than a 15 handicap. And I think if we can provide different avenues and different ways for people to be successful, and hey, if I'm getting a shot, I'm going to think about this hole in a different way than if I'm not. And I think that that's ultimately we've tried to build a golf course where. Uh, the thought process and how you work your way through it is different for every class of player. And, and a lot of it, you know, you guys know as well as I do, when you're playing a match, you're, if you're three up, you're playing a whole different than if you're three down. And so if we can build a golf course that allows people to, to try to answer questions uh, in a way to rel- relating to their skill set, but also to their position in the match, then I think that's a pretty cool, pretty What's, cool course. What hole at Stream Song Black do you get the most negative feedback on um it's probably the stretch three four five is about the hardest stretch and jim and i do i think it's good architecture but i don't think it's imperative for every golf course to be set up this way but we did it in rio we we've kind of created that situation in tpc boston where we like sort of stretches like there's an ebb and flow and there's certain times where you just know you've got three hard holes in a row and you just got to play good golf, but then you come out the other side of it and you're like, okay, now I got a chance to do something. And the Olympic course was definitely set up in that fashion where we wanted guys and the, and the men and the women to be making birdies coming down the stretch. So, so that's that stretch at stream song where, you know, three, four and five can beat you up pretty good. And I probably the one we hear the most complaints about is four. Because the force carry, because the, of the force carry, and because the you know the alternative, if you play it poorly, is it falls in your pocket or you've yeah. lost a golf ball. Whereas that doesn't happen uh, pretty much anywhere else on the golf course. Five is one of the most spectacular part threes in the game. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Thanks. What uh, is there? How would you say your design style or your overall style has evolved over the years? What have you learned, and what have you kind of changed or evolved in your process? Um, you know, I, I think, and I'm trying to get this to sound the right way. Um, you know, you become more confident, you, you willing to take more risks. And I remember having this conversation with Tom Doak way back when, I mean, when I worked for him back in the early nineties and kind of talking about how the architects who are successful should be the ones who are pushing the boundaries instead of playing it safe. 
you know, it's, it's easy to just sort of fall back into, hey, this worked here, this worked there. Let's just keep doing it and we keep making money and we keep getting in magazines, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to, hey, this site could be a really cool opportunity to reinvent or, or think about doing something else. Now, you might wind up pushing it so far that you have to kind of reverse course and come back on yourself a little bit. But I, I feel like we're in a really good groove. We've got a lot of good guys that are working for us who are all talented and thoughtful. And I think Jim and I are, are feeling a little bit more confident about pushing the envelope and, and, and taking chances where the client allows us to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's, that's where we're at right now. And hopefully we keep, we just keep getting better. And, you know, a lot of these restoration projects aid us in that, you know, I, I know after doing LA North, I'm a much better golf course architect than I was going into that project. Cause you know, through with Jeff Shackelford's help and, you know, having, getting us to understand George Thomas and, and having all that historical data there, um, you, you work on a course like that and you think, oh my gosh, I can take that to our, our work. And his, his, um, design philosophy definitely had an impact on the Olympic course in Rio. And then you get to Wingfoot and you spend, you know, hours and hours and hours or days and days studying and looking at those contours and shoveling and raking and trying to replicate them uh, through construction. And if you don't absorb that, you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that restoration component of what we get to work on um, is really helpful in keeping us sort of with fresh ideas and fresh thoughts. Keeps the tank full. Yeah, it does. Do you have any, is there any one project that sticks out to you as something that you're the most proud of? Uh, yeah, the cradle. Interesting. Yeah. I think that it is without a doubt the most successful thing that we've done and it may not be the most successful thing critically, but what we set out to do, it is accomplishing all of those things. When we were doing course number four, you know, walking in at night, you see eight sums of guys barefoot out there playing, hooting and holler, and you see grandparents with their grandkids. You'd see foursomes of kids and their parents are sitting up in the Adirondack chairs watching them play golf. And it's all about fun. Mm-hmm. And I think anything we can do to help grow the game and, and create fun opportunities and not necessarily maybe a little bit out of the box than what golf is traditionally viewed as. Uh, we're really proud of that. And and we're hearing an awful lot. And I'm not saying the cradle is the reason because obviously the preserve is it was there and, and then sandbox or is that what it's called? Yeah. Sand Valley. Yeah. It's Sand Valley. Um, you know, they're getting more notoriety and, but we've fielded calls for like two or three short courses this year. And so I think, awesome. well, we're proud of everything we do. That one's, that one's pretty cool. That's probably the ultimate kind of liberates you from, yeah. it's like a blank canvas, right? You can, it is. And you're not worried about whatever. I don't even know what shot values are, but I hear, I hear it a lot. And it's like, I've got to make sure the shot values are right. I, I, what is that? I don't know. But <laughs> you're, you're starting to think, you know, you're not thinking about that. You're not like, okay, is this green receptive to a four iron from such and such? It's how do we challenge a really good player with, you know, having to be creative and, and thinking yet still provide a pathway for a guy who's never picked up a golf club to get his ball on the green and putt and have a good time with it. And I think, Somehow, some way, we, we were able to accomplish that at the cradle. We're trying to get um, down in Jack's Beach where we live. We're trying to get the city council to approve a little bit more money to do a big putting course okay. down there. Kind of like a you know smaller version of like a, a, a thistle do or punch bowl. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another thing too. It, it's, it's great. And we've had, you know, we did the, the horse course out at the Prairie club was a blast to do that. And we did the roundabout at stream song. So, you know, it's, they're, they're becoming a, a key part of, of, of resorts and destination golf. And 
if it's a beer and a giggle, you know, count me in. I'm, yeah. I'm ready for that. I'll be there four or five nights <laughs> a week. You know. Any, that's what it, it, we got done playing the preserve a, a couple, few months ago. And I forget who somebody asked the question. We walked off like, did anybody, anybody miss hitting driver? Like, did you, did you miss it? Or did, was it kind of cool to just have a chance to approach every green for 13 straight holes? We're like, yeah, that's kind of that's fun. Anything to kind of break the mold from what you know, not everything has to be 7,200 yard par I, 72. I'd be a much better golfer if I played short courses with regularity. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, that's the part of I mean, the two parts of the game, the short game and the putting is really where you score. What I'm curious uh, and maybe eliminate the Open Championship from this, but I'm curious, what, what was your favorite either like PGA Championship or U.S. Open overall setup from an architectural standpoint, the most successful test of professionals. Uh, you're fine. The best overall test of professionals that you've seen on a major championship scale in, in recent or in past years. Wow, that's a great question. Um, hmm. I'm just going through my head and trying to come up with one that was just like, wow. And like, yeah, you took the Open Championship away because you could say every year for that. I was yeah, going to say, about, that, that makes it spot on. Um, I mean, I thought Oakmont was, for Oakmont, for what it is, was was really good. I think that's the one that comes to mind for me. I yeah. just felt like that that they towed that line pretty perfectly for that one and they did and you know the greens you give me a yeah you make the argument that but they're always that fast yeah you know what's the you know urban myth that they slow them down for the u.s open so that's not uh, i don't think that's a knock on the golf course but yeah i think we aside from the you know the rain the first day when it got crazy with the weather uh they're having to play catch up but yeah i think oakmont and, and that's it's not a fluke it's a great golf course mm -hmm. and and they've had championships they have plenty of experience in setting it up and knowing you know i think that's the difficult thing about going to a chambers bay or an aaron hills there's no track record for setting it up for that type of championship and so you're really kind of searching around for what's going to work how much work are you doing outside the u.s right now are you We've got, we're trying to do maybe one project a year outside the U.S. We've, uh, we're wrapping up Tokyo Golf Club, so we've just doing a major restoration there. Um, and then we just signed to do a new golf course south of Paris, uh, which we're really excited about in Loire Valley, uh, which I love wine. <laughs> so it'll be a fun, <laughs> fun project there. And it's a, it's a great site. It reminds me an awful lot of, um, like a Heathland type setup mm -hmm. and with Chantilly and Morfontaine as good examples yeah. of what could, you know, we could accomplish there. We're, we're excited about the potential for that job. And, um, you were building a, a new golf course in Thailand, which is kind of hard for me to even think about because the rainy season, so everything's shut down. So I kind of forget that occasionally, but it's a completely manufactured, uh, Rainer McDonald type golf course. Is that the Lido? It's, it's based on the Lido. We don't want anybody to say it's the Lido. Okay. It's not, <laughs> but you know, the sequence of holes is the same okay. and, and it's, you know, all the same characteristics. So that's, that's been a, um, you know, it's, it's a tough when you, you've, it's so far away to get the amount of time there. And we felt like a temp, template golf course would allow us to be more successful. Plus, it would just be pretty cool. What was the process like for building a new course in Scotland, the home of golf, with so many classic courses being kind of the reason why people go there and travel there? But what's it like to build a brand new course in that kind of landscape? First and foremost, it's an honor. I mean, it's it was amazing that we had the opportunity at Craighead to do that. And you know, our first solo golf course out of the box is you know, ten miles from St Andrews. Uh, and then with Castle Stewart, uh, with Mark Parson, and having had experience over there with Kings Barnes, he went and looked for a great site. Uh, 
you know, from a visual perspective. And then we created what we think is a, is a pretty good uh, representation of Lynx Golf. And some of it was there, some of it, we, most of it we had to build. So that was exciting in and of itself. I think we've always tried to honor the traditions of the game and, and not build something over the top. And I, and the, the feedback we've gotten is that our golf courses, while you know they're new, uh, they still feel like they could have been there for long. In fact, you know, uh, Graham Lenny, my, one of my best friends who's a pro at Crail, he called me in June and he said, happy 20th birthday. And I said, what? And he said, Craighead's 20 years old. Jeez. And I thought, my God, how do we have a golf course that old? <laughs> um so yeah, it goes by quick, but I think that the maturation of, of Craighead and I think the, you know, the acceptance of Castle Stewart from the Scottish Open and from all the people that go over and play it, um, you know, we've been, been accepted, which is a great thing. Yeah. I felt like it had been there for, <laughs> for a long, long time. I was prepared to like, all right, you know, we're playing all these old courses over here and I was prepared to say, Hey, I didn't like that place. It was probably one of my top three favorites of the trip. Thanks. And, and it all gets down to having an owner uh, like Mark and, and any, and a partner like Jim who want to get the details right. And I think that's something that, you know, people have asked us, well, how come you're, you, you get all these great old golf courses and you, and I think it's just that we are willing to spend the time to get the details right. And we try and get the details right in our new courses. And you can never overestimate that. If you get the details right, it, it all tends it tends to fall into place. On that subject, how do you keep yourself from being stretched thin and and having the time to get those details right? I'm sure you you know you want to take on like I mean <laughs> you know everything looks good right on paper, but you know how do you how do you get yourself to to kind of dial it back and say no to stuff. Yeah, we've had to learn how to say no. And it's it's tough because there are opportunities for some really, really strong projects and really great old clubs where we've just had to say it. We can't. I've, I've said this to people. I said, I'd rather you be disappointed now that I'm saying no than, you know, for you in, in a year from now going, you know, where the hell is Gil? He said he was going to be here and we never see him and, and we don't get to talk to him, et cetera. And I don't ever want to get to that point. Um, Russ Myers, the superintendent at Southern Hills the other day said he was talking to a salesman and he's like, wow, you must never see Gil. He's so busy. He's working on 20 projects. And Russ said, no, he's working at Marion and here. And that's pretty much it. You know, we've got all this other stuff in planning, but everybody's like, well, how are you working at Wingfoot? Well, Wingfoot's done. And, yeah. you know, how did you work at Iran? How are you, what's going on at Aronimink? Well, Aronimink's finished. These jobs actually do end. You know, they, <laughs> they stop at some point in time and then you move on to the next one. And that's been, you know, the critical thing for Gemini is to try and manage that flow so that we're never too busy, but we're always busy enough. And, um, we're in a, we're in a really envious, you know, we're in a, a fortunate spot that, that we're, we're able to say no and we're, but we're able to still commit the time that we need. Uh, on that subject too, what's your, what golf course that you can, politically say, <laughs> would you love to get your hands on? Uh, Yale. Yeah. I think Yale is, is one of the great gems in this country. And, and for any number of reasons, um, you know, the scale doesn't match what Rainer and McDonald had and, and, you know, the maintenance, uh, you know, Scott Ramsey does a great job with the resources he has, but, you know, it would be nice to see that golf course restored back to its, it's true glory. It's true scale. Cause I think it probably was unmatched in its day and maybe unmatched in this country for how large it was, how big the landscape was, the rocks, you know, but that would require a lot of tree removal. It would require a lot of, uh, restoration work to get it back into place. But I think Yale is, uh, is definitely deserving of that. 
I guess the last question on my end would be what is is the world running out of news like great new sites for golf courses is there still still some great stuff out there yeah there is there's there's a few that we're talking to people about and i think that you know what mike kaiser has done is he's he's set the bar i mean he's been as important as anybody in the in this era of golf course architecture he's provided you know uh, bill and ben and david and tom principally the opportunities to build great golf courses and on great sites and he's the one who put that equation together hey you know if you get a destination with a great golf course it can't be a good golf course it has to be great people will will travel and make far-flung stuff yeah and that's set the template for for you know herb kohler and for rich mack at streamsong and, and for pinehurst to do what they're doing and so i think that there's the recognition Recognition now that it, somebody once said this to me: you know, there's always room for quality. If you, you know, build it, they will come. Kind of yeah, thing. it's it's right. I mean, there's there's the golfing world doesn't have room for another mediocre golf course, but it'll always have room for a great golf course, and people will always go to to look for it and 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 explore it, find it. And so, I think as a result, that standard has now been set really high. And you're getting people like, you know, I have not seen it with my own eyes, but the photos of Tara Eady look unbelievable. It's and unreal. so, you I mean, people are going to the ends of the world in Tasmania to do this. And and so, as a result, I think, you know, the, those types of sites, they may not pop up on the east coast of the United States, but they're going to pop up somewhere around the world. 